Well, uh, with Debbie's and Steve's overnight adventures, they pulled off the sidelines again, and so I'm back. You know, uh, it's, what is that, uh, the one movie? Uh, I'm back. Um, this is about four years into the book of James, and um, we are two weeks from finishing it today, and whenever in the future they pull me off the sidelines again to this remarkable book. But a couple of housekeeping issues first. This pulpit, though you may not see it, has a noticeable tilt to it, a tilt to Eugene. Not good. And last night, while the Oregon Ducks struggled to beat a fairly inept opponent in Eugene, the Beavers went down to Los Angeles and killed USC. And I don't know whether I enjoyed the game more or the fact that it was in Los Angeles. Probably both. Congratulations to the Beavers, and now we'll get a little bit of adjustment to this pulpit between the Ducks and the Beavers. The second thing that I want to housekeeping-wise bring up is I want to happy to report to you that I'm off of probation. You may not have known it, but I was on probation with this body in the following ways. When we last were together and I was teaching on the subject of wealth out of, first, out of James 5, I asked the assembly to name again the four kinds of stewardships that we carry, we all carry, those, as you might remember, are time, money, possessions, and relationships. And someone spoke up when I asked if who had the answer to that, they could move to the front row. And I, I thought it was Bruce, of Bruce and Barbara fame. And I was pleased with that because Barbara is really the star of the Bruce and, Bar Bruce and Barbara <laughs> team. And I immediately got in trouble with three people, and I went into probation. The first one I got in trouble with was Barbara for saying she's the star, even though she is. The second was with Bruce for saying Barbara is the star, even though she is. And the third was with Glenn Sexton, who actually gave the answer and didn't get credit for it. So, but they have graciously let me, let me off probation, and so we're back in the harness today let me see your Bibles. That's our tradition for four years. All right, you can hold up your silly phones if you want, but hard copy is really the way to do it. Uh, come on, guys. Uh, James chapter 5. We have been talking with a great deal of realism about the subjects of the Christian life and adversaries and opponents to the Christian life. Most recently in chapter 5, we talked about wealth and the fact that wealth is an adversary to our Christian faith. You say, yeah, John, right. I didn't write this. It says in chapter 5, verse 1, you rich people weep and wail because of your misery. Since I gave that message a few weeks ago, I learned that one of my former employees that worked for me 10 years recently came into $20 million dollars. And you know, my first reaction was, my first kick of my heart was, dang. <laughs> and, and I realized that I've got that same malady of the allure of wealth. 
and yet wealth doesn't solve problems, it actually creates problems. And in our context today, you'll notice that verse 6 says that of the wealthy who were abusing these first century Christians, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Now the book of James, as you remember, was written in 34 AD, one year after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it was the only New Testament epistle that circulated throughout Palestine for about 15 years until the second epistle came, which was, I'm not even going to ask you to go to the front row, was Galatians. So this was Christianity 101, the book of James. That's why we've enjoyed it so much. And in that, these early Christians, the majority of whom were poor slaves, about 70% of them, were meeting in house churches, and they assembled with other believers, some of the Roman uh, centurions in faith, some of the wealthy, and they were getting instructions on how to live in light of the resurrection of Christ and the message of the New Testament, which is Jesus buried and risen again. And so James writes in verse 7, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. Somebody recently told me they pray for the Lord's coming every day. I don't do that, but I thought that was a great suggestion. And this text will tell us that we live with the imminency of His coming. Any day, today, any day. And while we order and structure our life as if it might not happen, we wish and pray that it would. Be patient, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. The seasons in Palestine had basically two rain cycles. The first kind of watered in the crop when it was planted, the second in the spring before it was harvested. I can identify with that given that we've just finished harvest on our farm as well, and it was assisted by the rains of a week ago. You too, be patient, James says, saying it a second time. Stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. That's our biblical text that says it's legitimately biblical to say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Today, you can expect it. And if it doesn't happen, then we live today and pray for tomorrow. James writes, don't grumble against each other. The Greek word here, and you remember when we go into the Greek, we don't get impressed by that. We just go from black and white to color TV. Don't grumble. The Greek word means groan or wail. It's kind of a... I may be sitting down on the inside, but I'm standing up on the outside. I'm, I, you know, it's something private I'm struggling with. And James says, don't grumble, be patient, because the Lord's coming is near. Otherwise, you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. So really, it is the picture of a courtroom. And we're all sitting there waiting for the judge to enter. And with the respect and decorum of a courtroom, we recognize that our behavior will be judged. Okay, stop for a minute. Rabbit trail, but it's got to happen. For Christians, there is something in 2 Corinthians 5 called the Bema Seat of Christ. And it means 
that while born again, while regenerated, while living our lives, we still are going to give an account of our lives to Jesus in heaven. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. And the staggering thing of that passage is says, we will give an account for everything done in the body, whether good or bad. Now, I'm not going to guilt you out today. In fact, I'm going to do the opposite of that. But you need to know that you and I as Christians are accountable for our lives, and we're going to give an accounting. So when we find ourselves in the courtroom, and the fact that the judge is near, we're saying, in the coming of the Lord, there will be an accounting. I've always said, and I believe it firmly, I'm not, these are not just words, I'm certain I'll not be toward the front of those lines. I'm sure the people in the front of those lines will be some of the quiet saints who have faithfully and regularly prayed and interceded for others and done the things that have honored the Lord. And we will give praise to God for them who will get their recognition at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the judgment seat of Christ doesn't move you out of heaven. That's established. But it is the recognition of how we lived our life on earth and that's a biblical theme. It's okay. And it's an accounting, and James deals with it here. Don't be judged. The judge is standing at the door. So at this point, James is going to instruct about patience, about long-suffering, about, in the original language, the long fuse. If I had the props for it, I would have started this message by lighting a fuse over here. And as I talked, you'd watch the fuse burn to over here. But I couldn't do that, and so I didn't do that. Um, verse 10. Brethren, as an example of patience in the face of suffering. Now, patience and suffering are the two themes of this chapter. Patience means persevering with a confidence that God's working in your life. Suffering means dealing with the distresses of life that are unexpected. So James covers the full gamut of what happens when bad things happen to good people. That's the subject for today. So take the prophets, James said, who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. And then he concludes our passage with an exclamation that says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So James directs us as the brother of Jesus, half-brother, who watched Jesus grow up in that home with Mary, and Martha, with Mary and Joseph and then participated in the events with the disciples and then was met by Jesus after his resurrection before he went back to heaven and given specific instructions in 1 Corinthians 15, which I think is a lot of the text of the book of James, James says, look at Job. So we're going to look at Job. And I think the easiest way to do this <laughs> is for me to summarize Job to you. And I want you to, at this point, just kind of pretend that we're sitting by your fireside. And you've asked me to come and give you a bedtime story. And I'm going to do it. And it's going to be the book of Job. Here it goes. I'm going to set the stage. And in setting the stage, it'll give an emphasis to the conclusions. 
In the land of Uz, there was a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil, period. Maybe the most righteous man in the Old Testament, along with maybe Joseph. And both he and God's opinion about him will be the same, blameless and upright. Now, this is one of the oldest of the Old Testament books. It happened likely, we know it happened before 2000 A.D., B.C., I mean, 2000 B.C., because of the way wealth is described in the book. But it was written about the time of Solomon. And one of the mysteries of the book of Job is, who wrote it? I think it was Solomon, but I'm ready to be corrected in heaven if that's not right. But this book was an amazing early prophet in the Old Testament, and Job was one who lived the right way. He was innocent in every respect. So why is the book in our Bible? He had seven sons, three daughters, thousands of sheep, cattle, all kinds of wealth. He was very wealthy, and he was, as the text says, the greatest man among the people of the East. It was his regular custom to bring sacrifices and office, off, offerings for his family, which the patriarch did in the Semitic times. And everything seemed fine until Satan entered with his angels. And Satan came before the Lord, and the Lord asked Satan to give an accounting. I, I say this carefully, but I'll say it boldly. He's a defeated foe. And he gives an accounting to God for what he does. He's been given certain liberties in your life and mine, a certain leash. We'll talk about that, even though the Bible says we have a hedge around us. He came to the Lord, and the Lord said, Have you considered my servant Job? And after Satan, after Satan gave an accounting of where he'd been, Jesus brought, excuse me, uh, the Lord brought, brought um, Satan's attention to Job. We've got a lesson to learn in this book, but there's something inside me that says, why'd you do this? You know, why, why did that happen in his life for what we're going to see? Maybe that's the same question you and I have. I mean, it's the question I get in my office. People will say, and I've heard this question hundreds of times in my office in 30 years. I didn't plan for my life to end up like this. I didn't plan for me to have the health problems or the business reversals or the family problems and the marital problems. By the way, when I was married, it was all in front of me. And, you know, we have weddings out there at the vineyard. We had one yesterday. And... Um, you know, the promises and enthusiasms of a bride who spent her whole life anticipating my life is going to be perfect. Uh, I, I kind of thought about distributing my business card to her in case life doesn't turn out to be perfect. <laughs> but, but my family said that was really nasty and cynical, so uh, I thought it was kind of funny at least. But So the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan snarled, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him? There it is. Circle that verse in Job chapter 1. And his household and everything he has, you've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread 
throughout the land, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he'll surely curse you to your face. Satan's theory number one was we are the measure of what we have. We are the measure of what we own. And the Lord said to Satan, very well, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man do not lay a finger. So test number one in Job, and remember James has directed our attention back to Job to learn about patience. Test number one is strip him of everything he has. So he lost his oxen and his donkeys and his cattle and his family, actually his children. He didn't lose his wife. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but he lost everything. And his response was, and, and as a parent, this is staggering to me, his response was, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. I've got to move. Uh, the Lord gave and the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, he did not sin by changing, charging God with wrongdoing. Past test number one. Test number two. Satan's wandering around, and God asks him to give an accounting. And... Um, so um, the accounting comes uh, with uh, Satan saying, you know, I've been roaming around the earth again, and, Joe, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And, and I say, no disrespect, Lord, but can you give the guy a break? I mean, he really passed the test. Uh, he's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and still maintains his innocence, his integrity. And Satan snarled, skin for skin. A man will give all he has for his life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and I'll curse you to his face. And the Lord said, very well, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. Test number two. Strip him not only of everything he has, but strip him of his health. And that's the core of where we live, isn't it? And so to, and people have described what Job went through as, kind of an elephantiasis. I don't know whether that's true or not, kind of a leprosy, but essentially was reduced to open sores and the, his health was short of dying, was destroyed. And um, so that's test number two. And the text says that Job was then approached by his wife who said, you know, um, you need to curse God and die. And her theory was the same one we'll see in the book. I'm moving, I really am. Um, you deserve this. You, you've held on to a God who's not faithful, he's not good, curse him and die. And, jo and Job said, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all this, Job did not sin. Amazing. So what happens next? The three friends come, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And from chapters 3 through chapter 32, remember you're just at the fireside, you just, I'm just telling you a story. Those three guys, first of all, kept their mouths shut, didn't say anything, just sat with him. And that's a good thing to do when you have a family or a friend in distress, just pray for them and sit with them. You don't always have to come up with an immediate answer. But then the three friends got in trouble. 
because they started developing their theory that the reason Job was going through these trials was because he, is, he had uh, acted wrongly. And that was incorrect. And so after those three friends said everything they could say to him and none of it was true, they fade off the scene and a fourth friend, a younger friend, comes on in chapter 33 named Elihu. And Elihu respectfully had been keeping quiet while the three older friends were taking, James, taking Job down one side and up the other. But then Elihu said, look, Job, I'm kind of irritated. You continue to justify yourself. And it has to be because you've done something wrong. Now, though Elihu spoke with more graciousness than his three friends, Elihu was wrong as well. And finally, the Lord put a stop to it in chapter 38 and said, The Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I'll question you and you'll answer me. Wow. Okay. This man who was innocent and blameless in all that he did now has had a comeuppance with God himself. So he said, well, what's going on? And the Lord began to set for Job, the best term I can use is perspective. Um, he said, Job, were you in the storms that you see coming across the plains? Were you in the clouds? Were you in the rivers? Were you in the mountains? Did you have anything to do, any control with the kind of power that I've demonstrated in the seasons and events around you? And the Lord then said to Job, with the one who contends with the Almighty, correct him, let him who accuses God answer him. Now Job has to speak to God himself and says, Job answered the Lord, I'm unworthy, how can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I'll say no more. And the Lord said, okay, brace yourself like a man. Here we go. And the Lord, between chapter 40 and 42, goes more into the detail of can you control the Leviathan, probably the alligator. Can you control the seasons? Can you control what you see around you? And Job finally got it. This man who was innocent and blameless in all his way that James has directed our attention back to on the subject of patience says in chapter 42, Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You've asked who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and then you shall answer me. Here it is. Here's the golden nugget out of the book of Job. This is the reason the book of Job is in our Bible. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. What happened? There's a certain part of this innocent, wonderful, godly man who his faith was in his head and hadn't translated down to his heart. And he said, I get it now, Lord. I get it. There was something, it wasn't sin, but I had some misconstructions about who you are. And now going through what you've put me through with these tests, now my eyes have seen you. So the first thing that we learn from the book of Job 
is that suffering happens to teach us more about who God is. That's it. As long as we draw breath, if we challenge God and say, you had no right to do that to me. You had no right to pull the rug out from under me like that. We're wrong. We're challenging him who is the author of all that we see and do. And we need to correct our perspective from our head to our heart. That's the message of the book of Job. But as I thought about it last night as I was, and this morning, when I was preparing this message, I realized that that's kind of an academic answer. It works for me. I like it. I like that. But it may not have quite the emotional impact on you that going from the first of the Old Testament prophets would see to the last of the Old Testament prophets. Who's the last of the Old Testament prophets? You can come to the front row if you can give me the answer to that. Not Malachi, wrong, Bruce. Who? You got one more chance. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. I don't know who did it. I'm not even going to guess or I'll get in trouble again. Uh, but that's right. So go to Matthew 11. Matthew 11. We'll move quickly. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And John was struggling. This man who kicked butt and took names. It's okay to say that. It's an anatomical part of our body. It's what God used to train our children to obey, is, you know, paddling the little bottoms. John, who, who ripped swaths through Palestine, who absolutely named the name of the Lord without fear and reticence, at the end of his life, was put into prison. And he began to say, was my ladder leaning against the wrong wall? What? John the Baptist said that. What does it say? It says that nobody in this assembly, nobody watching this message, will ever get to a place in their Christian walk where they have no doubt, no fear. It's part of the walk. And it's part of John the Baptist's last days. And so from prison, with confusion, it's okay to say that, he sent his followers to Jesus. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the ones who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Whoa. Did I get the wrong memo? Are you Jesus, are you not the Messiah? How, how do you explain that I'm in prison? Do you feel that sometimes when things happen to you? Why did this happen? I didn't deserve this. You, you may not have deserved it. Certainly these believers in James 5 were being abused by the wealthy when they didn't deserve it. And Jesus had, and, and I'll just tell you, Matthew 11 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because it says, unlike most others, it shows the compassion and mercy of God and Jesus. When John's followers came to Jesus, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you've heard and seen. The blind receive sight, 
the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. What was Jesus' answer to confused John the Baptist in prison? Three things. One, ask your questions. If you're, if you're confused about your faith, the last thing you should do is jump under the couch. Get on your knees and say, God, I don't understand this. I don't know how to live wisely with what you put in front of me. And I may have contributed to part of the problem, and I'm speaking now to you about me. That's usually my case. I can usually find a percentage of what the dilemmas that I'm in that I caused the problem. I always was irritated that my mother, as I grew up, single parent, that she always assumed when I got in trouble that I was the one at fault. And what irritated me was she was only right 80 or 90% of the time. Um, and for that 10% that she missed, I was quite indignant. But, you know, I've got my list. As a freshman in college, driving my high school brother to school, we were in a wreck and he was killed and I almost died. And, and I thought, God, why did you spare me? A few years later, single parent, my mother died of multiple sclerosis. Well, Everybody's got their list. But the question is, what are the answers? And Jesus' first response to John's disciples is, ask your questions. James 1.5 says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask of God who will do three things for you. I love the book of James. We may do it again after this. I don't know. <laughs> ask of God who, one, gives generously to all. There's no section of Christendom that he'll not be generous in giving you wisdom in how to live. Gives generous to you all, and without reproach, he won't hold your mistakes of the past against you as he gives you wisdom. And third, and it will be given to him. That's the God who we love and serve. And Jesus said to John's disciples, ask your questions. Secondly, we've got to move quick. Look at what I've done in the past. The lame walk. The dead arise from the dead are risen to life. The blind can see. Look at the track record of Jesus and God in the scriptures and be encouraged by that. And third, Jesus said, Blessed is the man who does not fall away. Now, as if that was not encouraging enough for John the Baptist, Jesus then went on to say about him, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there's not been anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom, is greater than him. What an encouragement. John, you don't understand why you're in prison, but it's all part of the kingdom process for you and for my heavenly Father. The measure of the veracity of God's kingdom is not metered out by the days of our lives. It extends beyond our lives and beyond our circumstances. So, the first and last prophet, we're done. The first and last prophet, Job, John the Baptist, the message was persevere. And that's really what James also says at the end of our section when he says, the Lord is full of compassion. Be patient, therefore, until the Lord's coming. How do we conclude this? Three ways. First, why hasn't God come today? Why has he not come today? I've got a partial answer. It's out of 2 Peter 3. And reading, 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Excuse me. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. One of the reasons God hasn't come today is there's still some, some, some souls to be brought into the kingdom. There's still the gospel message that goes out full and embracing to say Jesus is the one who is the solution to your sin problem and God's offer of spending eternity with him. I, I love, and you know this, from Michael's sermon months ago, that the thief on the cross, I love this, I really, it really impacted me, to the second thief who reprimanded the first thief for chewing on Jesus. He said, we deserve this. And then he turned to Jesus and said, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus said, that's the shortest conversion prayer in the Bible. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Wonderful. One of the reasons Jesus hasn't come is that there's more people to bring into the kingdom. Secondly, when we struggle with things that we don't understand and we look at the message of the scriptures in the book of Job and John the Baptist, we finally conclude that the issue is not fairness. The issue is grace. One of the things that trips us up is that we say, okay, I, I may not have been the best person in life, but I'm not the worst, and yet it seems like Bad things happen to good people. Well, you know, Ecclesiastes says that. And again, it says, all things are within the order and pattern of God to teach us what we need in terms of our walk. My life, early on as a seminarian, was impacted by a man named Biancato. I've given you the story before. The Billy Graham of Africa came to Dallas Seminary to get his doctoral training went back and met Biang and his two boys. We actually sold tickets at the Cotton Bowl to one of the Texas-Oklahoma games. That's when they had real football in Texas. And, um, and Biang went back with his sons to Africa and was swimming in a lake and drowned. And if ever we thought we wanted to kind of challenge God's purposes in life, oh, you know what? I forgot to dismiss the kids. They're gone. Okay. If, if I, I asked Jamie to remind me. I didn't see Jamie, the kids, whatever. Um, uh, we said, God, what are you doing? Piancato drown? Well, if you Google Biang's name today, you'll find that Biang wrote a number of books on the scriptures. And today his writings have spread throughout Africa and are encouraging the church. And that was God's purpose. Biang had finished his work. So when you come to a situation and you don't understand it, rather than challenging God, we say with the book of James that in fact, the scriptures remain true. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance, there's our word, 
perseverance must finish its work so that you may mature and complete, not lacking in anything. That's the course and scope and path that we are all on to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we, we bend our knee again to you and to your word. And we acknowledge that we often struggle and are confused and come up short in understanding your purposes in our life. And so we're thankful for your word, which divides to the thoughts and tents of our heart and recognizes that we are people that stumble in many ways. But though we stumble, you remain faithful to us. And as you were with John the Baptist, full of compassion, full of commendation, and offering to us to come to you when we are weak and downtrodden, and you'll give us grace. Amen.